The reading's taken from Luke, chapter 24, starting at verse 36. That's Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he'd led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's no doubt that uh, the advent of COVID-19 has got people thinking. An email I received uh, the other week said, Whoever said one person can't change the world never ate an undercooked bat. Well, whether the virus reached us via a bat or a pangolin in Wuhan market has yet to be confirmed. But there's no doubt that one act led to the virus coming from animals into humans. Something which, as of the 16th of April, has infected over 2 million people worldwide, half of them in Europe, and led to almost 150,000 deaths. In the United Kingdom, we've had over 100,000 cases and 15,000 hospital deaths have sadly been recorded this month. It certainly reminds us, if we'd forgotten, that life is considerably more fragile than we might normally have thought. Some of us, particularly those in the more vulnerable categories, might have thought that If we got it, that would be it. We're in no state to be able to fight it. In that sense, COVID-19 serves as a wake-up call, a reminder of reality, that we're not immortal. But what then? Well, providentially, we're in the Easter season. And we consider passages like the one we've had read to us this morning, Luke 24, 
36 to 48. Yes, I know he'll have read to 53, but uh, we'll have to leave the ascension till next week because we won't have time this week. But fortunately, Acts 1, 1 to 11 was written by the same author, Luke. And quite fortuitously, in the middle of it, he repeats much of what he said in these remaining verses of Luke 24. So what does Luke offer us and our faith in these uncertain times? Well, I'd venture to suggest four things. First, verses 36 to 43. You'll be able to follow them on the outline at the back of the uh, song sheet this morning. First of all, evidence, more evidence for the risen Christ. The Christian faith, as we know, stands or falls on that foundation. Is it firm enough? Secondly, verses 44 and 45, sometimes it's only with hindsight that things make sense. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is one of them. Now, the disciples and others didn't get it while Jesus was in this world. But it all fell into place for them after he had entered the next world. He opened their minds, we read, so they could understand what the scriptures had said in advance, what Christ would do, and now, looking back, they can see that he's done it. (coughs) And thirdly, it's one thing to have a broad understanding, it's another, 46, 47, to be focused on the core business. What would you say was the, if somebody asked you, what's the church primarily in business for? What's its, what is it first and foremost about? Well, when Jesus as he has the chance here, wants to sum up the core message. What does he say? Let me read you 46 to 47. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So, suffer, die, rise from the dead on the third day. And that's what he's done. And as a consequence, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached or broadcast in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Forgiveness of sins is what is on offer to us as a consequence of what he achieved between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that first Easter. And if we've been able to access that ourselves, then that puts us in the position of being a witness to it. We're witnesses not in the primary sense that those first disciples were who saw the risen Lord, but in a secondary sense, we are witnesses to their witness. And, of course, we have the personal testimony 
of our experience that we've known that we've been forgiven, that we have peace with God, that we have a sure and certain hope of eternal life. So, the first point, some more evidence for the resurrection. So it's the first Sunday, Jesus has risen, and Cleopas and one other had encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They're now back in Jerusalem, and they tell the other disciples that Jesus had appeared to them, and then quite suddenly, they're in a room, shut doors, shut windows, And yet Jesus appears before them out of nowhere. Needless to say, verse 36, they're reported as being startled, frightened, and thought they'd seen a ghost. Now, although Jesus had told them that he must suffer, die, and be raised to life on the third day, of course, they hadn't really grasped that. It was not part of their frame of reference. They'd not taken that on board. Now if, as was the case, they came from the Galilee, they would have come under Greek influence. And Greek thinking would have been much more about the immortality of the soul rather than the resurrection of the body. If they have been of the Sadducean uh, tradition, which is unlikely, then they would have had no belief whatsoever in the resurrection. No life after death. If, as some of them might have been influenced by the Pharisaic party or the more orthodox Jews, then yes, they did believe in the resurrection of the dead, but on the last day, a general resurrection. They never had in mind an individual resurrection in their lifetime, in Jerusalem, in front of them. Now, we're not talking about a resuscitated corpse here, like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, who were brought back to life by Jesus. But what we are considering here is that Jesus' body was raised from the dead and then transformed into a glorified body, one which which he, he he has forever, one in which, as far as our world is concerned, He can appear and disappear at will. A bit like, I suppose, Captain Kirk and the Starship Enterprise when they press the button on the transporter. Appear, disappear. And yet a body you could touch, that uh, could eat, that could drink and could talk. That's what happened here. Let me read you verses 38 to 43. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, as we might nervously approach something with which we are unfamiliar, 
they are encouraged by Jesus to examine him, to look at his hands and feet, to look at the nails that had gone through, the nail points that had gone through his hands and his feet. He says, touch me and see. He says, ghosts don't have flesh and bones, implying, of course, clearly he does. And he ate a bit of grilled fish, or barbed fish, if you like. That's what broiled means here, by the way. And eating with them convinced them. The Christian faith stands or falls on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To have confidence in faith sharing, we have to be sure that it happened too. Now some of the disciples, the women particularly, they had identified the tomb that Jesus was buried in and they were the first to return to it that Easter Sunday. It had been a guarded tomb, but it was by now an empty tomb and the Roman soldiers had fled. There were multiple eyewitnesses, 550 different people on at least a dozen different occasions over a six-week period encountered the risen Christ, many of whom were still alive when the first accounts of the resurrection were written and in circulation. Then there's the implausibility of Jesus' body being stolen. If the Roman authorities had stolen the body, they would surely have produced it and the whole thing would have never got off the ground. Or the idea that the disciples might have stolen it is implausible when you consider that all but one of them would have died knowingly for a lie. What we have is that People who on the Friday were rather cowardly. They did not want to be associated with this man who was going to be crucified. And yet six weeks later at the next feast of Pentecost, they were full of it. They were fearless. They had been totally transformed through encountering the risen Christ. And that requires an alternative explanation, a plausible alternative explanation, if we want to discount the resurrection of Christ. And the message they shared transformed the lives of millions. Rodney Stark, in his The Triumph of Christianity, estimates that by 350 AD, half of the Roman Empire, 31 million people, were professing Christians. In Rome itself, two-thirds, 66% of the population, were Christians by 300 AD. That is remarkable. Professor Sir Norman Anderson, in his little booklet, Evidence for the Resurrection, if you send me an email, I'll send you a free copy. Sir Norman was the director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at uh, London University and a QC. He was experienced in examining evidence. This is what he concludes... Finally, he writes, what of the one who rose? It may indeed be objected by some critic that a resurrection from the dead is so incredible that no amount of evidence would suffice. Such an attitude seems prejudiced and unscientific, but let that pass. Let us assume that the resurrection of an ordinary man is indeed incredible. 
But such a line of reasoning cannot apply to the one whom we are considering. He was unique in all he did, in all he said, in all he was. Whichever way one looks at him, he is in a class by himself. Even apart from the resurrection, there is evidence and convincing reasons for believing that he was God manifest in the flesh. Is it then so incredible that such a one should rise from the dead? It would have been far more incredible if he had not. It is indeed the profoundest of mysteries that he should ever have died for us men and for our salvation. But having died, it is no mystery that he should have risen. So to have confidence about our faith, we need a confident foundation, which we do have with the accounts of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Our second point. We need a clear understanding and knowledge of the Christian faith. We need to see how it coheres together and how it corresponds to the world in which we find ourselves. Now, the impression given in the Gospels is that the disciples were rather slow on the uptake. Jesus taught them, but the penny hadn't dropped. They had a lot of information, but they found it hard to make sense of it all. Well, I suppose we mustn't be too hard on them. First of all, Jesus was utterly unique, a real one-off. It's hardly surprising they took time to make sense of him. But then there's something outside their control. They are only going to be allowed to see if Jesus enlightens them. So, 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. And in the prophets, that's from Moses to Malachi, a period of a thousand years. And in the Psalms, particularly what are called the royal Psalms, where someone is sung about who is far greater than any contemporary king on earth had been. The message that Jesus had really driven home to them, but which only registered after the resurrection, was that the Christ, the Messiah, will or must suffer, die and rise from the dead. The juxtaposition of the Messiah and the suffering servant was something that was very hard to get their heads around. Now Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, literally means anointed one. And he's the central figure of Jewish expectation. The Psalms and Isaiah 9 see this to be worked out through a future king, an idealised King David. A king who will meet world opposition, but who will emerge as victor because he's acting on behalf of Yahweh, the Lord God. He will establish world rule. He will be based in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. He will be concerned about morality. His rule will be everlasting, peaceful and prosperous. 
He will have undeviating loyalty to the Lord God. He's preeminent among men. Under him, the righteous will flourish. He's remembered forever. He possesses an everlasting name. He's the object of unending thanks. In relation to Yahweh, the Lord God, he is the recipient of everlasting blessing, heir of David's covenant. He belongs to Yahweh. He's devoted to Yahweh. He is Yahweh's son. He's seated at Yahweh's right hand. He is himself divine. Just a few extracts from Psalm 45, verse 2 to 7. Speaking of this figure, the psalmist writes, You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendour and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A sceptre of justice will be the sceptre of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And there's also in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, this suffering servant who will accomplish God's great salvation. The servant's career is summed up in three verses, Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. And it's composed of suffering, exhortation and world influence. Then Isaiah 53 elaborates, showing in the servant's life among men his substitutionary death. And the inner explanation of it all is the will of Yahweh, the Lord God, who brings his servant to victory and life after his suffering and death. And then Isaiah 54 calls Israel into a new covenant. And in 55, the call goes out to all the needy to enter into this free salvation Now it's likely that Isaiah 55, 3 and 4 made the link between the Messiah and the servant, but not many Jews subsequently did and certainly not in Jesus' day. The realisation that the Messiah, the anointed saviour king, would achieve his goal of salvation by means of his victorious suffering in the place of sinners for both Jews and Gentiles was something that only made sense to the disciples after the death and resurrection of their Lord. What Jesus had been saying now registered with them because they had seen what he'd done to make it possible. Salvation for all. The late New Testament scholar, Professor F.F. Bruce, comments, his ministry 
crowned by his passion, was characterised by steadfast adherence to the path marked out for him by his Father. And in consequence, Jesus has given to the word Messiah a new meaning, transcending every connotation which it previously bore. And now thirdly, the focus on the core message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. John Calvin, the reformer, in his Institutes writes, the whole of the gospel is contained under these two headings, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Therefore, when he meant to summarise the whole gospel in brief, Jesus said that he should suffer, rise from the dead, and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. In some ways, being an advocate or a witness for Jesus Christ is a tall order, because no one gets to Jesus except, of course, by admitting that they've so far spent their lives ignoring him, shutting him out, and consequently not living as he intended. And so the first step is humble pie. And none of us likes admitting that we are wrong. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. If therefore he has nothing as far as I know, know to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realised that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself in the wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. Now, when they built the Church of the uh, Holy Nativity in Bethlehem, they made sure that in order for an adult to enter, he had to stoop by making the doorway no higher than this lectern. Repentance is metanoia in Greek, from which we get the word metamorphosis, and we think of those little grubs, those caterpillars, changing into beautiful butterflies. Metanoia, repentance, is essentially a change of mind. So just as Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures, so now, recognising who he is and what he's come to do, they change their minds about him. Once anyone realises who Jesus is and what he's done, they realise that he can solve their biggest problem, which is sin, the barrier, the moral and spiritual barrier between us and him and him and us. Sin, you see, is first of all rebellion against God. It is the way we're born, It is our default position. It is a barrier that that remains in place until two things happen. The first 
is that Jesus has to remove the barrier, which he does by paying the penalty for sin. And the second is when we avail ourselves of the pardon that he now offers. And we do that through repentance in turning to him, but also by faith, trusting that what he's done on the cross works and that God can forgive us. Now it's very important not to be glib here, not to be too superficial. Paul points out in Corinthians 2, 7, 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is when we recognise that we've got ourselves into a right mess. And our solution to that is often to blame others for it, or even to blame ourselves for it, but we're really only sorry for the inconvenience that it's caused us. And of course, as a consequence, it results in little change. We're still heading away from God and to death without hope and an eternity of regret. Godly sorrow, though, recognises that it is primarily God we have wronged and it is him from whom we have to seek forgiveness of our sin since it's fundamentally against him that we've wronged by ignoring him and misusing our lives. Now, self-forgiveness is very popular today. Ariana Grande made a recent New Year's resolution. I look forward, she said, to hopefully learning to give some of the love and forgiveness that I've given away so frivolously to men in the past to myself. Actors Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins were interviewing each other for a magazine recently. And Brad Pitt said, I'm realising as a real act of forgiveness for myself for all the choices that I've made that I'm not proud of. Now he does value what he calls these missteps because it's led to some wisdom which has led, he says, to something else. Well that is great that he has benefited from the realisation but he doesn't seem to realise that you can't actually separate the sin from the sinner. You might be able in your mind to detach yourself from what you've done, but it's still yourself that has done that. It is your totality that is uh, culpable. And that, of course, brings me to his second short-sightedness, the damage that his actions may well have caused others. Now, C.S. Lewis is very good at bringing our sins into connection with Jesus. And I quote this at length because it's easy to miss with our familiarity with the passages. So he says, And then comes a real shock. Among the Jews there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. 
Now let's get this clear, Lewis says. Among pantheists, by which he means Eastern religions, anyone might say that he was part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But since this man was a Jew, he couldn't have meant that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside of the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you've grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man who is unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's wallets? Lewis says, asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet, this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offences. Now this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit, unrivaled by any other character in history. You can read more of Lewis's very astute insights in his book, Mere Christianity. So, a firm foundation in the evidence of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a clear understanding of the Christian faith, how the Old Testament all comes to be fulfilled in these New Testament events, and how once we realise who Jesus is, it all clicks into place. And the focus is on a particular transaction. Our repentance of our sin and God's forgiveness of them. And lastly, there is the mandate. Now a mandate is an official commissioning to do something. A political party election manifesto is said to be their mandate for legislation. Not in the manifesto means no mandate to make it law. Now if you look today at a map of the Middle East, of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Lebanon, 
Israel, Palestine, you'll notice that there are lots of straight lines and that looks rather odd. And that's because those countries were created in world, after World War I by the League of Nations. When the Western nations got together and a mandate was given to some of them to rule those territories which had been liberated from the Ottoman Empire. So France was mandated to rule Syria and Lebanon. Britain received the mandate to govern Iraq, Transjordan and Palestine. Here, Jesus mandates his disciples as his witnesses. You, he says, are witnesses of these things, verse 48. They have the evidence for all that Jesus had taught, for what he was like, for what he'd done, and supremely here, they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection from the dead. Some of them would have seen him more than once or twice risen from the dead. And they are to testify about it with the evidence they were to be advocates of his teaching and resurrection. Now in the first sense, the primary sense, that role is unique to them. And fortunately for us, their witness has been recorded by them for our benefit. So that in a secondary sense, we can testify about Jesus based on their evidence. We can apply it to ourselves and we still have a role based on their evidence to share it with others. So we can have confidence. Jesus did rise from the dead. We have a firm foundation. Those events of the first Easter enable the whole Bible to click into shape realising who Jesus is and what he's done, enables us to see how it all hangs together, provide us with the big picture. And we can focus on the entry point to a relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ via repentance. And we are granted forgiveness of sins and we've been mandated we are albeit only secondary uh, witnesses but we take that evidence and we share it for others for them to turn around their lives and to trust in Christ who is both able and willing to forgive them their sins Amen.